Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. My name is Injie Guo. I'm the chair of the Department of Chinese Studies at the School of Languages and Cultures at this university. Um, welcome to Sydney Ideas. It's a great honor to introduce you to you Dr. Kate Backnall from Wollongong University. Dr. Kate Backnall will present a keynote lecture on Australia and China before and below the nation. Before we start the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. The Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, it's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. Dr. Kate Becknell's keynote lecture, as I said, is about Australia and China before and below the nation. December 2017 uh, marks the 45 years since Australia and China established the formal diplomatic relations. In celebrating such uh, anniversaries, it's common for politicians and diplomats to note how the Australia-China relationship has developed over the intervening years. Usually they cite trade and investment figures and tourism dollars and the growing numbers of the growing numbers of Chinese students at Australian universities. But what of Australia-China relations before 1972, before 1922, and before 1872? In this lecture, Dr. Kate Becknell considers a different history of Australia-China relations with the first known Chinese settler in New South Wales arriving almost 200 years ago. What do we know about the men and women whose lives crossed between China and Australia and Australia and China in the 19th and early 20th centuries? And what do we know about the connections of people and place forged before and below the nation to nation ties of the late 20th century? and how might a focus on the national and intimate in the past, um, personal intimate in, in the past, contribute to the better understanding in the future. Kate is an ARC Decro Research Fellow in the School of Humanities and uh, Social Inquiry at the University of Wollongong, where she's working on a comparative study of Chinese colonial citizenship in Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. She has published on various aspects of Chinese-Australian history and is co-author with Sophie Couchman of Chinese-Australian Politics, Engagement, and Resistance, which was published in 2015. Much of her research explores the lives of women, children, and families of Australians earlier early Chinese communities and the transnational connection and Chaoxiang ties of Chinese Australians before 1940. 
And she is on, on Twitter, and you also can find her research on, on, on uh, do we have the website there? Anyway, she's, she's, got, a uh, she's got a research blog. Um, so it's a, it's a great honor to welcome you, um, Kate. Without further ado, I would like to, to pass it on to you. Thank you. Thank you very much to the China Studies Centre here at the University of Sydney for inviting me to present this keynote as part of the symposium to mark the 45th anniversary of diplomatic relations between Australia and the People's Republic of China. It's a great honour. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built and upon their lands that I received my university education here. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. In 1933, Sydney journalist John Sleeman published a book called White China, an Australasian sensation, a work in which he aimed to tell the story of China in a single volume. Confessing that this task was tantamount to canning a whale in a sardine tin, Sleeman nonetheless managed to cover a remarkably diverse range of topics on Chinese history, philosophy and culture in his 350-page text. There is discussion, for example, of Chinese inventions like printing, gunpowder, post offices and paper money. There's discussion of the women of China, including China's most famous beauty, 8th century imperial consort Yang Guifei, and there's discussion of recent Japanese military aggression in China, particularly the invasion of Manchuria and Shanghai in 1931 and 1932. Sleeman declared that White China presented the story of China written by an Australian for Australians. Yet his perspective on the topic was not entirely his own. In 1929, Sleeman had been hired by Sydney-born Anglo-Chinese-Australian businessman William Liu and the Sydney Chinese Chamber of Commerce to be co-editor of their newly established Sino-Australasian Times newspaper. Published in English, the newspaper aimed to create international understanding and trade development between the East and Australasia. The Sino-Australasian Times newspaper folded two years later, but White China was its direct descendant. William Liu co-wrote White China with Sleeman, and his voice is present throughout the text, most particularly in the 40-page addendum, which takes the form of a conversation between Sleeman and Liu. The addendum is titled, WJL Liu has a word to say, exclamation mark. Reviews of White China in the Australian press were not many and not altogether kind. The Sydney Sun called it a fiercely anti-Japanese, anti-European and strangely reasoned survey of Chinese art, politics and aspirations. The reviewer from Brisbane's Daily Standard noted that Sleeman wrote like an American movie star talks in a flamboyant style where much of the book's information was lost in a welter of words. The Brisbane Courier noted that educated readers would be cautious about accepting Sleeman's version of history because it was obviously written to square with his own decidedly left-leaning political opinions. 
Even those of Sleeman's own political persuasion, such as the reviewer for Sydney's Labor Daily, did not agree with all his conclusions. But at least he conceded that the book would be of great use to every student of national and international politics, as well as to the student of history. White China is a somewhat curious work, but as a student of history, indeed, as a feminist historian of Chinese Australia, there are several things that I rather like about it. The first is its discussion of women's lives and women's issues, both in the dedicated chapter on the women of China and elsewhere throughout the narrative. The second thing is the obvious presence of Chinese Australians within this story of China, something that no doubt came from William Liu's involvement in the book's creation. The third thing I like about White China is that although the book's main argument concerns the state of trade, between Australia and China. Its tone is far from that of a dry work of economics and politics. Sleeman was an old hand at producing colourful prose. In the late 1920s, he was editor of Beckett's Budget, a newspaper that in the words of Bean Nan, combined a soft pornography and hard politics. Then in 1931, Sleeman was hired as publicist for controversial Labor Premier, Jack Lang. As Sophie Loy Wilson has commented, Sleeman was a master of the telling and selling of stories, and he populated white China with an intriguing mix of characters, historical and contemporary, whose life stories illustrated the book's larger arguments and pricked at the Australian conscience. This approach prompted the Daily Standard reviewer to comment that Sleeman had put in too much biography until it looked like a history of personalities rather than that of a nation. Facing the risk of similar criticism, in my lecture this evening, I'm going to approach the question of Australia-China relations not through the lens of trade or economics or politics or diplomacy, but through that of biography. In particular, I'm going to share with you stories of three ordinary women whose lives crossed back and forth between Australia and China in the 19th and early 20th centuries. They are women whose stories Sleeman and Liu told in White China. Women whose stories, if not their names, were probably familiar to white China's readers. For each of them had, for a brief moment at least, already been in the eye of the Australian public as the subject of political protest, legal proceedings or scandal. Through their stories, I want to consider a different history of Australia-China relations, one that took place before and below the nation-to-nation -nation ties of the late 20th century. When we think at the level of the nation, we bring to mind figures like Gough Whitlam, Frederick Eggleston and George Morrison, or perhaps with more of a stretch, Charles Lee, William Arquette and Quang Tart. While not discounting the significance of these men in the history of Australia-China relations, I want to suggest that the relationship is deeper and richer than a focus on politics and diplomacy might suggest, particularly in our long history of personal and intimate connections of people and place, connections that today might be classified as people-to-people -people diplomacy. I suspect that I approach the entangled histories of Australia and China in this way, from the bottom up, because this is how I know China best. 20 years ago, in 1997, after finishing honours in history here at the University of Sydney, I went to live in the small coastal town of Zhuhai in Guangdong province. Only an hour by ferry from Hong Kong and sharing a land border with Macau, 
Zhuhai was one of the five special economic zones established in the early 1980s as part of China's um, policy of economic reform and opening up to the world under Deng Xiaoping. In Zhuhai, I taught English at the Radio and Television University and at the Zhuhai Number One Middle School. I lived on the university campus in the student dormitory. Back then, Zhuhai still had its friendship store. Most Zhuhai residents had never been to Macau, let alone to Hong Kong or abroad. And people still proudly recalled Deng Xiaoping's visit to the city during his second southern tour five years earlier. The school that I worked for, the Zhuhai Australian English Language Centre, had been established in 1992 by a Chinese-Australian businessman from Sydney, a former maths teacher and Seventh-day Adventist, who had seen a need and desire for oral English classes among the people that he met in the course of his business dealings with Zhuhai factories. In 1997, the only foreigners that we knew of in Zhuhai were us and the teachers at the American English school nearby, but we never bothered to try and get to know those Americans. Instead, we found friends and companions amongst our adult students, friendships that for me still endure two decades later. In the 12 years that the school ran, it taught more than 12,000 students and took 79 Australian teachers to China. Zhuhai is located in the Pearl River Delta region of Guangdong Province, an area that today is an economic powerhouse and emerging megacity encompassing nine prefectures, including Guangzhou, Dongguan, Jiangmen and Zhongshan, as well as Hong Kong and Macau. Zhuhai and the Pearl River Delta region more generally has a very important place in my heart, but it also has a very important place in Australian history for it was from the Pearl River Delta counties through Hong Kong that most Chinese immigrants went to Australia in the 19th and early 20th centuries, as well as to other white settler colonial sites around the Pacific, such as California, Hawaii, British Columbia, and New Zealand. The only other significant point of departure for migration to Australia was Amoy, or Xiamen, in Fujian province, from where around 3,500 indentured labourers departed for the Australian colonies in the late 1840s and early 1850s. For more than a century then, from the 1850s to at least the 1960s, Australia's Chinese communities were Cantonese communities, comprised of people from about a dozen counties in the Pearl River Delta. They came from the Samyup, or three counties of Panyu, Shunzhou and Nanhai, the most affluent and commercialised counties in Guangdong. They came from the Seiyup, or four counties of Xinhui, Enping, Kaiping and Xinning, later known as Taishan. They came from Gaoyao and Gaoming to the west of Guangzhou, and from Zhengcheng and Dongguan to the east. They also came from Xiangshan, later named Zhongshan, the county to which Zhuhai and Macau belonged. The languages spoken in Australia's early Chinese communities were therefore mostly forms of Cantonese, also, although some of these Cantonese dialects were not easily mutually intelligible due to differences in pronunciation and lexicon. Dialects from other language groups from Guangdong, including Hakka and Zhongshan Min, were also spoken. The three women's stories that I'm going to share with you cross back and forth between Guangdong and Australia in the decades between the 1880s and the 1930s. 
In White China, Sleeman and Liu used these women's stories to illustrate the misguided and prejudiced attitudes of many white Australians towards their Chinese neighbours and to highlight the injustices of the white Australia policy, something that these stories certainly do, as we will see. But in thinking about the Australia-China relationship, I hope that their stories will also suggest how Chinese Australians were and are key to the story. This includes men of wealth and standing from the merchant and political elite, men whose stories that we know from the work of historians like John Fitzgerald in Big White Lie and Mayfin War in Making Chinese Australia. But it also includes the many thousands of more ordinary lives that connected Australia and Guangdong, as well as Hong Kong and Shanghai across the, the 19th and early 20th centuries. The lives I'm going to share with you this evening are those of Ham Hop and her husband Poon Gui, Lucy Wong Sao and the On Hing family, and Agnes Brewer and her husband William Lum Mo. Ham Hop. Ham Hop arrived in Melbourne on the Japanese steamer the Nikko Maru in November 1910. In the early stages of pregnancy, and the only Chinese woman on board, she had travelled down from Hong Kong with her husband, Poon Gui, a produce merchant from country Victoria. Although the couple had married 10 years before, in effect they were just beginning their life together as husband and wife. Poon Gui had lived in Victoria for seven years before going home to China in 1900 to be married, but he returned alone to Victoria some months later. The couple then spent the intervening decade apart, with Ham Hop living the wife of a Gum Sanpo, a gold mountain wife, one of the many women who remained in Guangdong while their husbands lived and worked overseas. Ham Hop was unusual in coming to Australia to join her husband, one of less than 150 Chinese women to do so in the first two decades of the 20th century. And by the time she returned to China in 1913, both she and her husband had become household names. Ham Hop entered Australia on a temporary six-month permit, the most that the Australian government would allow her under the Immigration Restriction Act. But once she arrived, her husband mounted a determined and sustained campaign for her to be allowed to remain permanently. While ultimately unsuccessful, Poon Gui's campaign found widespread public support and was an ongoing embarrassment to the Fisher Labor government and especially to Minister for External Affairs, E.L. Batchelor, and his successor, Josiah Thomas. The Poon Gui case, as it became known, was the first serious public challenge to the White Australia policy, and today it remains one of the best known, mostly through the writing of historian A.T. Yarwood in the 1960s. Thirty years earlier, in White China, our friend John Sleeman had told a rollicking version of the story, not always quite true to the facts, although, in fairness, perhaps they were the facts as he knew them. It was, he said, a story that has in it all the nature of a romance of loving hearts being torn asunder by the terrorism, the malignant evil of a despot, in this case, the law. Ham Hop was about 17 when she married Poon Gui in 1900. We know almost nothing of her early life, but it's likely that she was born and raised in the Siyup countryside. Her future husband, Poon Gui, left China for Victoria in 1893 at the age of 18, when Ham Hop was only 10. Their match was presumably an arranged one, as most Cantonese marriages were, but Poon Gui offered good prospects. 
He was educated, literate in English, and making a decent living in Victoria, where he built up his business interests following on from the successes of close family members and fellow clansmen who'd arrived in Australia before him. The Poon clan was from a cluster of villages at Chiaotou, near the market town of Yueshan in Kaiping. Poon clansmen had settled in Melbourne, centred around the Leong Lee store in Little Burke Street. They also lived in Western Victorian towns like Horsham, Hamilton, Warrnambool and Warraknabeel, as well as in Tasmania, South Australia and Western Australia. The Poons were associated with the Geraldton Fruit Company, wholesale and retail fruit and produce merchants, which operated in Geraldton, now Innisfail in Queensland, and in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide and Perth. When Poongui arrived in Australia in 1893, he first went to live at Warrnambool on Victoria's west coast and then at Horsham in Western Victoria, where he worked as a gardener. By 1900, he'd established himself in the Horsham community, including as a regular attendee of the Bible Christian Church. And so he decided in 1900 to return to marry Ham Hop. He was granted permission by the Victorian government under the Chinese Act of 1890 to bring Ham Hop to live with him in the colony. But he then returned at the end of 1900 without her. Where Hamhop spent the decade between 1900 and 1910 is not recorded, but she most likely lived in Poongui's family home in Kaiping, perhaps with his parents and extended family, attending to the duties that befell a Cantonese daughter-in-law. The family would probably have lived in relative material comfort, as Poongui had the financial means to send money home to support them. Meanwhile, in Australia, Poongui further developed his business acumen and his social and political networks in Australia, working for the Geraldton Fruit Company in Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide, before setting up his own produce business, Poongui & Co, in Horsham in 1907. Together with his brothers and uncle, he bought land in Horsham and he became a leader of the Horsham Chinese community. In early 1910, Poongui wrote to the Australian government asking for permission for his wife to visit him in Australia. In the decades since Ham Hop and Poongui had last seen each other, the situation had changed for wives wishing to join their husbands in Australia. The Federal Immigration Restriction Act of 1901 had very briefly permitted the entry of wives and children of domiciled Chinese men. But due to the numbers of Chinese availing themselves of this concession, the provision was suspended in March 1903 and then repealed in December 1905. From 1906, there was no statutory provision then for the permanent entry of Chinese wives of resident Chinese men, resulting instead in an ad hoc system where temporary exemption certificates, much like a visitor's visa today, could be issued to the wives of long-standing residents of good character. The Australian government granted permission for Ham Hop to visit Australia for six months on the understanding that an extension would not be granted. And so Poongui returned to China to fetch her. Although they were already married according to Chinese custom, they married again in Hong Kong on the 5th of August 1910, according to British law before the Registrar General. They returned to Hong Kong together in November that year, by which time Ham Hop was about two months pregnant. They made a home together at Geelong, where Poongui set himself up in business again, establishing Poon, Poon Brothers, general commission agents and wholesale produce merchants in Geelong's Market Square. 
Han Hop's baby, named Queenie Hop Poongui on her birth certificate, was born at the family's home at Moorable Street, Geelong, on the 5th of June, 1911. A year and a half later, on the 4th of February, 1913, Queenie was joined by a little sister, Lena, who was born at the family's new home in the suburb of Hearn Hill. The births of these two little girls were central to Poongui's argument that Ham Hop should be allowed to remain in Australia. The girls were, after all, Australian-born British subjects. Through his efforts, between June 1911 and April 1913, Ham Hop's original six-month exemption certificate was extended on five occasions. The extensions were granted because Ham Hop was pregnant and should not travel, because of the disturbed condition of affairs in China in 1911, because Ham Hop was breastfeeding and there was concern that the travel would interrupt baby's feeding. And then the last ones were because her, her daughters were each not well. In seeking these extensions and in his larger goal of gaining permission for Ham Hop to remain in Australia permanently, Poon Gui enlisted the so support of white Australians, including the Protestant Christian churches and various social and political groups. Petitions were signed, meetings were held, deputations were sent, letters were written, and over a thousand articles about the case appeared in the Australian press. Many white Australians felt that the family situation was exceptional and that a clear injustice was being done by not allowing the family of this respectable Christian businessman to live with him in Australia. The Australian government, however, was reluctant to set a precedent by allowing Ham Hop to remain in Australia permanently, and threatening deportation, they grew increasingly frustrated with Poongui's delaying tactics. In the autumn of 1913, after Ham Hop had been in Victoria for about two and a half years, Poongui realised that his fight was in vain, and so the family prepared to return to China. Their departure on the Yawata Maru from Melbourne on the 7th of May 1913 was widely reported in the press, as was their journey up the coast of Australia. They arrived in Hong Kong on the 2nd of June, and while there is no record of where they went from there, it's likely that they returned to Poon Gui's ancestral home in Kaiping. A letter that he later wrote to friends in Geelong stated that they'd had a good trip and that there were great changes in China following the establishment of the Republic. After a year together in China with his family, Poon Gui returned again to Victoria in 1914, re-establishing his greengrocer business in Geelong's Market Square. He made a lengthy trip back to China in 1916 and 1917, and then, at the end of 1918, he left Australia for good. The last record of Poon Gui in the archives in Australia shows that he was living and working in Shanghai in the early 1920s, one of the many Cantonese who pursued business interests there after returning from Australia. There is nothing in the archives to indicate whether Ham Hop and their children were there with him. Lucy Wong Sao. Lucy Onhing was six years old when she left Australia for the first time. The second time she did so, she was 44. The first trip in 1889 was taken with her parents, sister and brother as they left their home in the New South Wales country town of Gulgong to live in her father's ancestral village in Guangdong. The second trip in 1927, was taken with her husband as she left their home in the Sydney suburb of Ermington to return to his Cantonese ancestral village. 
Neither trip was really of Lucy's choosing. One was the decision of her parents, the second was the decision of the Australian Government and the High Court. Lucy Onhing was born at Gulgong on the 20th of March 1883, the daughter of 44-year-old storekeeper Onhing and his 22-year-old wife Wai Yu. Onhing had arrived in New South Wales as a young man in the mid-1850s, establishing himself as a storekeeper in the gold rush town of Home Rule and then at nearby Gulgong. In February 1873, the Town and Country Journal noted that On Hing and Company was one of the three large establishments in the main street of Home Rule, dealing in the drapery and grocery businesses. On Hing was naturalised as a British subject in March 1875, after almost 20 years in the colony. His reason for being naturalised? Because he wanted to purchase land. To complete the trifecta, in early 1880, he married Yu in Sydney. Freeman's Journal reported this news, saying, Mr On Hing of the firm On Hing & Co, storekeepers of Gulgong, has just returned to that town with his newly married bride, nay Miss Awa, after a brief sojourn in Sydney. The young lady is only 17 years of age and arrived in Sydney from China by the last mail. Marriages like this, where both partners were Chinese, were not common in colonial New South Wales. On Hing and Wai Yu had three children in Gulgong. Emily, born in 1881, Lucy, born in 1883, and George, born in 1885. In 1889, the On Hing family returned to China, taking up residence in On Hing's ancestral home of Gumfu, a place that I have yet to certainly identify. On Hing was not in good health and he died when Lucy was a teenager. Wai Yu's death followed six years later. In China, the family had lived on money that On Hing had taken back with him from Australia and also from the, the land that he owned in the village, inherited from his own father. After On Hing's death, the land passed to the ownership of Emily, Lucy and George. In about 1917, at the age of 34, Lucy On Hing married Wong Sao, a market gardener from Sydney, during a visit that he made home to China. Wong Sao's father before him had also lived in Sydney from the 1890s until his death in about 1921, and Wong Sao had joined him in around 1900. Wong Sao's mother and younger sister had remained in China, and Lucy lived with her mother-in-law um, after their marriage, after Wong Sao returned to Sydney five months later. The couple lived apart for seven years before Lucy came out to join Wong Sao in Sydney, arriving on the SS Victoria from Hong Kong on the 21st of August, 1924. On her arrival in Sydney, Lucy presented her birth certificate as evidence of her right to return to Australia. But she was also given the dictation test, which she failed. After 35 years in China, she no longer spoke any English or any other language other than Chinese. Following a successful writ of habeas corpus, Lucy was permitted to leave the Victoria four days after arriving in Sydney. But as soon as she landed, she was arrested as a prohibited immigrant. In Sleeman's words in White China, she had returned to her native land, but the agents of her homeland proceeded against her as a prohibited immigrant, and at the police court, she was convicted. 
An appeal against this conviction was lodged in the Court of Quarter Sessions, and on the 13th of November 1924, the appeal was allowed on both the question of fact and of law. The court found that she was not an immigrant and therefore could not be a prohibited immigrant within the meaning of the Immigration Act. Lucy Wong Sow's reception on her arrival in Sydney was almost identical to that of her brother George, who had returned on the SS Changsha four years earlier on the 25th of October 1920. Like Lucy, George had presented his birth certificate as evidence of his Australian domicile, but also like Lucy, he was given the dictation test, which he failed. George was able to leave the Changsha and land in Sydney, once again on a writ of habeas corpus, but was then arrested as a prohibited immigrant. When the matter was heard at the Central Police Court in December 1920, the magistrate found in George's favour. On the evidence, he found that George was born at Gulgong, New South Wales, that he was the person whose birth certificate um, he had presented, that he had always intended to return to Australia, and that Australia was still his home. Despite their initial similarities, the siblings' stories differed, though, in their eventual outcome. For while the Australian government did not contest the lower court's judgment in George's case, meaning he was free to remain in Australia, in Lucy's case, they lodged an appeal to the High Court as a test case. The High Court heard the appeal in April 1925 and ruled in the Commonwealth's favour. Lucy Wong Sao was an immigrant within the meaning of the Immigration Act, and having failed the dictation test, she was therefore a prohibited immigrant. According to Justice Isaac Isaacs, quote, the test as to whether a person was an immigrant or not was whether the person at the time of entry into the Commonwealth was or was not a constituent part of the community known as the Australian people. Influential members of the Chinese communities of Sydney and Darwin contemplated lodging a further appeal themselves, an appeal to the Privy Council, but Wong Sao was not interested in pursuing further legal action. After the High Court's judgment was handed down, Lucy Wong Sao was due to be deported. She was very reluctant, however, to return to China alone without her husband. Wong Sao was not in a financial position to allow him to leave Australia immediately, though as he had heavy debts due to the cost of the legal um, proceedings and because of a recently failed tomato crop. He therefore applied for and was granted permission for Lucy to remain in Australia for 12 months on a temporary certificate of exemption. He had written to the government in May 1925 that Lucy had, quote, openly expressed that she will not return to China without me and if compelled to do so, would do harm to herself. Lucy's health was not good. She underwent surgery for pelvic inflammation in early 1926, and on medical advice, she was permitted to remain in Sydney until strong enough to travel. She and Wong Sao left, Hong Kong on the S left for Hong Kong on the SS Tanda on the 15th of January, 1927. Agnes Brewer. In White China's chapter on the women of China, Sleeman and Liu recounted the story of a young Queensland woman that had appeared in Sydney's World newspaper in September 1932. The sensational article claimed that after marrying a Chinese in Townsville, the woman had gone with him to China where she was badly treated by her husband and his family. 
The World wrote that a fortnight after having her baby, the woman was forced to work in the rice fields like a coolie, that she lived under conditions that an Australian would scorn to allot to a diseased dog, and that her child was taken away from her by her husband's Chinese wife. The story had come to the World newspaper from ANZAC members of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps, who had helped the Salvation Army rescue the woman from China and facilitate her return to Australia. The World article read like a melodrama, a sensationalist tale of slavery, immorality, racial pollution, cruelty, kidnapping and piracy, mixed together with tropes of female helplessness and the heroism of the white Australian male. It spoke of a thrilling rescue from a Chinese hell, of terrible conditions and frightful cruelties. Moralistic as well as sensational, the article ended with a quote from one of the woman's Anzac rescuers. He said, Australian women who marry Chinese should heed the perils attached to such and should on no account accompany their husbands to China. In white China, Sleeman and Liu countered the world's version of the woman's experiences by reproducing a statement that she herself gave to customs officials on returning to Australia. Her statement, as published in the book, which itself was given a journalistic gloss by Sleeman, addressed particular points of exaggeration from the world's account. She had not had to live in a hut, nor did she have to work in the rice fields. Instead, she had stayed in a flat on the main street of the town and had not even been made to do her own housework. She was certainly not held captive and could have left for Australia at any time, although not easily with her infant son. The real root of her difficulties, she said, came from her father-in-law's objections to her marriage to his eldest son. Although not named by Sleeman and Lou in White China, the woman was 19-year-old Agnes Brewer, the daughter of a naturalised German-Australian father and an English-Australian mother, born in Brisbane in 1913. From the mid-1920s, Agnes and her family had lived in Townsville, where her father, an electrical engineer, taught at the Townsville Technical College. She was, from all accounts, bright, well-educated and stubborn. Her husband was William Lummo, a, a man who was, in the words of Townsville's Evening Star newspaper, a cultured young Chinese, the son of a well-known Chinese merchant, formerly of North Queensland, but now resident in China. William had arrived in Townsville in 1921 under the name Lum Wee, coming to Australia on a Chinese student passport to live with his storekeeper father, Lum Mo, and attend school. Having completed high school, in 1925, William enrolled in night school at the Townsville Technical College, also taking over control of the family fruit shop and general store when his ailing father returned to China for medical treatment. In 1928, at age 22, William Lum Mo returned to China and married a woman chosen by his family, Li Wan Ying. She remained in China, living as part of the Lum family household in Zhongshan after William went back to Townsville several months later. This situation mirrored that of William's own parents. After first arriving in Australia in 1896, Lum Mo had lived apart from his wife for more than 20 years, returning home to visit on a number of occasions and fathering four sons. As the boys grew up, Lum Mo arranged for each of them to come to Australia to be educated and to work in the family business in Townsville. 
After he returned for, to China for good in the early 1930s, Lummo also took a younger second wife who bore him a daughter. It's not exactly clear when Agnes and William began their relationship, but they were married on the 18th of December 1931 at the Townsville Registry Office. Agnes had just turned 18 and was apparently unaware of William's Chinese wife. The young couple decided to honeymoon in China though, but their holiday plans were delayed while arrangements were made for management of the shop in William's absence. By the time they left in March 1932, Agnes was several months pregnant. Having married William, a Chinese national, Agnes lost her rights as an Australian-born British subject. In the eyes of the Australian government, she was now Chinese, and her unborn child would not only be ethnically Chinese, but born in China too. Agnes was given permission to leave Australia and return within two years. Her baby could return on evidence of its bona fides, providing he returned with Agnes before he was three years old. William Lummo's certificate of exemption which allowed him to remain in Australia first as a student and then as manager of the family business was due to expire. But as it had been renewed time and time again over the previous 11 years, William presumed that there would be no problem in his returning from his Chinese honeymoon, just as he had returned from China before. After leaving Queensland, Agnes and William traveled to Hong Kong and then inland to Shekhi, the capital of Zhongshan County, arriving in mid-April 1932. The Lum family was originally from a village called Shangtang in the Liangdu district, just south of the capital. But Lum Mo had built his family a substantial and modern home in Sheki itself. The young couple's reception from Lum Mo was cold, as he disapproved of William's decision to marry Agnes. The birth of their son in August 1932 only caused more family conflict, particularly with William's Chinese wife, Li Wanying, who Agnes felt was spiteful and jealous about the baby. Convinced that family reconciliation was impossible, Agnes became anxious to return to Australia. She wrote to her parents in Townsville, who through the Salvation Army organised her rescue and arranged her passage from Hong Kong back to Australia. To avoid a scene, Agnes left Shecky with baby William without saying goodbye to her husband, an action that he later said had broken his heart. But the couple also remained in regular contact and hoped to be reunited in Australia again soon. Agnes and baby William were permitted to return to Australia as had been arranged with customs officials in Townsville before they left, and they arrived back on the SS Taiping on the 4th of October, 1932. The Situation was different for William, however. He had been allowed to remain in Australia after his schooling as a substitute for his father to manage the family business. But due to his marriage to Agnes, William had lost his father's support and so was now out on his own. Despite Agnes's best efforts and her heartfelt entreaties to the Australian government to allow her husband to come back to take care of his wife and child, officials refused to admit him unless he met the requirements of a merchant conducting a genuine import-export business with goods and capital of no less than 500 pounds. It was more than double the amount that William could muster. From the official correspondence in the archives, it is clear that the Australian government wanted to use Agnes and William as an example. 
They did not want a repeat of the sensational events of 1932, and they were unsympathetic to Agnes's plight of being left without a husband and a father for her baby. Written in the margins of one memo from the Customs and Excise Office in Townsville are the words, the woman is not worth this trouble. In the days and weeks after her return to Australia, Agnes spoke publicly about her experiences in an attempt to counter what the press was saying about her and her family. How far this was her own idea or that of others is not clear. A telegram from William in Hong Kong a fortnight after she had arrived home read, correct newspapers exaggerations, save our name, consult William Liu in Sydney, I will return Townsville soon, money follows. William Liu unsuccessfully attempted to use his own official connections to help Agnes and William, writing, for example, to the Department of the Interior in November 1932 to clarify the circumstances of the case and raise the question of William Lummo's readmission to Australia. Telling their story in White China, although anonymously so as not to tarnish the family's name, was another of his efforts. Agnes spent almost a year trying to get permission for William to return to Australia before she finally gave up. William remained in China, but kept in contact with Agnes and their son over the passing years. Over time though, his heartfelt letters to Agnes shifted to cards and photos addressed just to his son. And the last contact that they had from him was in December 1950. Baby William was by then a young man of 18. So, to conclude, in preparing for this lecture, I went looking to see how the anniversary of diplomatic relations between Australia and the People's Republic of China had been marked in the past. In the politician's speeches that I came across, there was something of a pattern, comparing Australia and China before 1972 and Australia and China after 1972. As I was reading one of these speeches by then Minister for Foreign Affairs Kevin Rudd from November 2011, one thing struck me as being quite odd. In the speech, in a section called Deeply Entwined Economies, Rudd noted the rise of recreational tourism between the two nations, stating that today 356,200 Australians visit China annually. In comparison, he said, only 1,000 Australians had visited China prior to 1972. Over the past decade and more, as a historian, I've traced the lives of Chinese-Australian families back and forth between Australia and China. One of the main sources that I've used in this research are the tens and thousands of records now held in the National Archives of Australia that were created in the administration of the Immigration Restriction Act. Records about people like Ham Hop, Lucy Wong Sao and Agnes Brewer. Among these voluminous archives are two registers, one for New South Wales and one for Queensland, where details were kept of Australians of non-European heritage who were travelling overseas using their birth certificates as proof of their Australian nationality. Registers for the other states were kept but have not survived. In the New South Wales register alone, which mostly dates from the 1910s to the 1930s, there are the names of nearly 2,000 Australians, mostly New South Wales born, who were travelling to China. How then, I thought, could Rudd's figure of only 1,000 Australians visiting China before 1972 be right? 
With some further reading, I traced Rudd's figure back through two other speeches by Alexander Downer in 2002 and Mark Vale in 1999, through Lachlan Strawn's 1996 book, Australia's China, Changing Perceptions from the 30s to the 90s, to a work by Edmund Fung and Colin McKerris, published in 1985, called From Fear to Friendship, which I believe was probably the original source for the figure Rudd cited. What Fung and McKerris said, though, was that about 1,000 Australians visited China in the Menzies years, that is, from 1949 to 1966, a figure, that, a figure that to them demonstrated not the limits of Australian contact with China before 1972, but of the continuing contacts that Australians had with China despite the absence of formal diplomatic ties with the People's Republic after 1949. I finish with this example as a reminder to not lose sight of the detail and by extension the individual in the history of Australia-China relations before and after 1972. As Sleeman and Liu so vividly demonstrated in White China, individual Australians, both of Chinese and non-Chinese heritage, were at the core of the entangled history of these two nations, even long before they were the nations they are today. As we mark the 45th anniversary of diplomatic relations this year and move towards the 50th anniversary in 2022, I hope that we might remember more of the intimate connections of people and place that inhabit our shared histories, connections that demonstrate a long personal, familial and social engagement between China and Australia and Australia and China. Thank you. Uh, Babette Smith, that was terrific, Kate. Thank Thanks. you. I'm curious about young William, who was 18 in 1950. What happened to him and did you meet him? I didn't get to meet him because he passed away by the time I made contact with the family. But I, I have met his daughter. Um, she lives on the Sunshine Coast. And it's through her that I have the wonderful letters and photographs about the family. Um, but he didn't talk about his background or the family story at all with his, his own wife and children. And it was really after his passing that um, the family found the documents and photographs that had been his mother's, that he had then kept um, squirrelled away in the house, unbeknownst to anybody. Um, but um, his daughter, Liz, um, she then, through the wonders of the internet and family history websites, made contact with um, her father's cousins who are in Sydney. Um, so there's been a really lovely um, sort of um, reconciliation in the next generation of the family. Uh, I'm Brad uh, from the, uh, oh, thank you, from the Chinese Heritage Association. Uh, Kate, when did Agnes die? And I, I gather from listening to you that she didn't actually escape through Shanghai, but through Hong Kong. So there was no sensational escape at all. There was not really a sensational escape, no. But she, there was, through the Salvation Army, which her parents had contacted in Townsville, and then they contacted the Salvation Army in Hong Kong, who then contacted this um, volunteer defence corps um, men who actually went from Hong Kong to Macau and then up to Shekhi and helped her leave the, the family home in Shekhi and then back through Hong Kong to, to Townsville. Um, and she died 
um, in the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, Cam Louis, uh, UNS, from UNSW. Uh, I th the paper is really fascinating. Thank you very much for, you. for that. Um, but I not noticed that in the beginning you said that you, you um, take an interest in women uh, and some feminist sort of approach almost. But the, the three women that you discuss um, seems to me that there's very little agency. I mean, it's not, not, your, not, 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 not your fault, of course, but um, I was wondering whether you found anything where um, you know, women actually are presented as taking initiative, doing something. I mean, these women probably did, but the fact that, that they didn't leave any writing or you couldn't interview them is a problem. Yeah. But is there, is there a way around that? Because I think what you're doing is really, really, really good. I mean, but, um, but the, the telling of the story doesn't, doesn't give us any idea mm. of what, what these women, women felt at all. And yeah. I guess that's one of the real problems that we face in uncovering the stories of um, women in Australia's Chinese communities. I mean, the, the numbers were very small of Chinese women who migrated to Australia. Um, so that's the first thing, is to, to uncover who these women were. And, and other work that I've been doing is, is trying to give a name to some of these women, particularly the early women who came in, in the colonial period. Um, but as, as you say, records that we have that, that have these women's own voices are, are very, very limited. Um, so I guess it's trying to piece together from the records that we do have, which are generally um, government archives or newspaper accounts, um, to piece those stories together. Um, I guess probably in the stories that I've told here, the women, as you say, the women's agency isn't so um, direct. But I think that um, the more that we particularly use family stories and, and use oral, um, oral histories and the stories that are passed down within families themselves, um, I don't have contact with these women or women who, or, I mean, people who knew them directly. Um, so I, ca I can't do that in these cases. But um, certainly, and that's one of the really great things about working with community historians is, is to get the, the different aspects of those histories from the government archives, newspapers, and, and from families too. Uh, my name is Warren Duncan. I think my qualification for asking this question is that I grew up in Townsville from the 1944 I was born, so I was there all during those years. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to school with lots and lots of um, um, Chinese kids. And um, you mentioned the family business. I wonder what the name of that business was. Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. But there, there was a Hao Lum family. Mm -hmm. Still there, I, I played tennis against Colin Hao Lum. And they were very respectable <laughs> members of the, mm. the community. In fact, all of those, those families were. So uh, have you written more about that? Because I'd be interested or yes, maybe... Yes, yes. I've, I've, I've written a, an article about um, Agnes's story. Um, I can give you the, the okay. details later. Um, Thank yeah. you. But one, one of the really lovely things that, um, that Agnes's granddaughter have is the photo albums um, from her... I think from her grandparents' courtship. Um, so before they went to China, there are these lovely pictures of them having picnics, um, going on car trips into the countryside, um, just being young people who were obviously in love. And they're really very, very poignant um, photographs, particularly when you know the sort of the, the later story. Yeah. Hi. 
My name is Tiger, and uh, I'm, from, I'm a student in history department at this university. My question to Kate is that you mentioned a lot about people-to-people -people relationship, but I'm just wondering when they say face you know, the problem with uh, white Australia policy, would they approach, say, Chinese diplomats in Australia in order to help them to fight their, this uh, racial discrimination policy against Chinese people? Thank yes. you. Um, so in answer to your question about whether Chinese Australians um, use the resources of the Chinese consulate um, in Melbourne, they certainly did um, after 1911. Um, and in the, the files, the White Australia files that are held in the National Archives, there is a lot of correspondence between the Chinese consulate and the Australian government. Um, and the, you know, there was limited success, I guess, that the consulate had in, um, in arguing against the unfairness of the White Australia policy. But the, the, gov the Australian government also used the consulate um, as a way of, um, they did things like checked people's identity, they got the consulate to um, confirm people's identity. Um, they also referred to them on cultural matters as well. Um, there's one case um, connected to the, the On Hing family. Um, in, a, in the 1880s, the On Hing family had a servant, a Chinese woman named Kung On. And she, once she was 16 or so, she married a Chinese merchant herself, William Alum. And um, this family, the children went back to China, as these other examples showed. Um, and then Susie Alum, the daughter, wants to come back to Australia. But when she'd returned to China, she'd had her feet bound as about a 10 or 11 year old. Um, and when she returned to Australia as an adult, the Australian government doubted her identity because of her bound feet. They thought that an Australian-born child who'd been sent to China when she was age 10 wouldn't have ever had her feet bound. And so they wrote to the consulate and said, you know, can you tell us about foot binding? Um, and the consulate wrote back um, and gave them information. Um, so there were really interesting ways that the Australian government and the Chinese consulate in Melbourne um, communicated. Um, Alan Cherry is my name. Uh, I'm a retired teacher. I spent uh, a significant number of years teaching in Darwin and I taught a, uh, a significant number of kids who were of Chinese Aboriginal um, relationship. And uh, did your research uh, undertake any um, of those uh, interracial uh, relationships? And of course, the complexities of Aboriginal and uh, Chinese relationships? That's a really interesting question. Um, my work mostly, other than the case of Agnes, mostly focuses on New South Wales and Victoria. And in the southern colonies, there's much less intermarriage between Chinese and Indigenous families, um, whereas in North Queensland and Darwin, um, there is significant amounts of, of intermarriage. Um, there are some really interesting cases, though, of um, mixed-race Indigenous Chinese children going back to live in the Guangdong villages as well, though. Um, but we don't really know a lot about their experiences there. Um, but it's really interesting, interesting subject. Yeah. Uh, I think we're still thinking. Uh, I was intrigued by your title. I could see where you're coming from with before the nation. Mm. But can you say something about Ender? I guess that for those of you who are at the symposium today, 
um, throughout the day. We had um, a session on economics, a session on international um, relations and um, security issues, and one on culture. And I guess for me, a lot of those discussions were at a very high level, you know, talking about government to government ties, government to government interactions. Um, but for me, I guess what I'm thinking about is what's happening below that level. You know, it's these stories, I mean, the, the, you know, the relationship between those governments and those nations is a framework. But I think for most of these people, um, the way that they thought about China and Australia was not at that level. It was the ties that these people had were to a village or to a town in Guangdong. It wasn't to Beijing, it wasn't to the nation of China. It was a very localised um, sense of belonging and I guess that's what I'm kind of alluding to. Yeah. Sorry, I'm Jacinta, so I'm a student at um, this university as well. And I was just wondering, when there are intermarriages in Australia between Chinese or maybe people of other ethnic groups, do they get married through the traditional Chinese way, the tea ceremonies? And was that recognised by the families? Or is it all through, um, I guess, like the state? Mm, really interesting question. Um, the evidence we have for sort of Chinese marriage practices is very limited. Um, certainly, we do know of um, some examples of sort of traditional Chinese weddings taking place and the couple not then formally registering as well. Um, but I suspect that maybe that, that happened more than, than we know of. Um, certainly, um, some of the families that I've been looking at from the, the colonial period, from the 1870s and 1880s, um, they say that they were, you know, for example, um, the, on, the On Hing couple, they said that they were married in Sydney in January 1880, but I can't find any record of a marriage for them. So it's likely, therefore, that they went through a Chinese marriage ceremony of whatever form that took, um, rather than a, a sort of a, a formal marriage registration. Uh, Brad Power again. Uh, I was just going to amplify on Kate's answer about the the below the, the government level. It, it is it's just worth remembering how many Australian enriched Chinese went back went back at first to their home provinces through Hong Kong, but as Kate mentioned, ended up in Shanghai. In some cases, running enormous business enterprises that uh, played a significant part in the modernisation of China whether it was the department stores or the woolen mills or, or other enterprises that they developed before the revolution in 1949. Can I just announce Margaret Kelly, Australia China Friendship Society. We've been around for 65 years. Talking about, uh, oh, just adding on to that, uh, one of our members, Peter Hack, has just written a book on Shanghai, the Art Deco mm. department stores. Yes. And he actually mentions William Liu, and uh, how his personal collection, uh, uh, connection uh, from his aunt, Stevenson, somebody Stevenson, who was a mentor, uh, uh, William Liu. Yeah, so that was interesting. Talking about visitors, talking about figures, I don't know whether you meant Australian Chinese people going back to China, but we've been, um, um, of course, um, uh, established since 1951, Melbourne, 52. Mm. And before diplomatic relations, uh, 
was before between Australian and uh, Chinese um, government. Um, anybody who went to China had to come through our society. And so uh, at one stage, we had between 6,000 and 10,000 members. <laughs> we are a very small society now. Everybody can go to China. But at that time, we had that many people wanting to go to China, but through us, because mm. we were the only ones who had connections had with connections. China before yeah. the diplomatic relations between two countries. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Margaret. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Nick Chose. Thank you, Kate. Just on the question of the marriages between Chinese and non-Chinese in Australia um, and which ones were recognised and which were not, um, I know you've done some comparative work on Canada and US and New Zealand. Are there any sort of, just in a nutshell, any big differences mm. between the Australian legislation or approach and in those other countries? Yeah, very much so. So in the United States, in um, various of the states, um, particularly California, which had a very significant Chinese population, there were anti-miscegenation laws. So it was not possible for Chinese and Chinese men, it's usually Chinese men, and white women to marry. Um, so you have examples in the United States of, of couples who are from San Francisco, um, leaving California to get married in a state where, it, where there aren't anti-miscegenation laws. Um, so in California, there are much greater numbers of Chinese women who enter California than they do in Australia. And I think one of those reasons is that in Australia, there was not seen to be a need to bring in women because a lot of the women who were sent to California were pro worked as prostitutes. Um, but in Australia, because we didn't have the same level of um, sort of anti-miscegenation anti law and sentiment, um, particularly from the 18, in the 1850s to the 1880s, um, there was really no, I mean, there was social stigma, but there wasn't any um, legal impediment to relationships forming between Chinese men and white women. And it was really remarkably common um, we sort of think about sort of the racial differences between white Australians and Chinese Australians and think, you know, that they live very separate lives and in very separate communities. But there was a lot of meeting and mixing and um, when you have a large population of single men, um, the obvious things happen. Um, Hi, I'm Bill. Um, so I want to ask you about the question that you, it, it relates to identity, um, the identity of these perhaps you know, um, children that were born in Australia but are of Chinese descent, and you know, and then they get go back to China and then come back here, and they're not quite Chinese, but they're also not quite viewed as Australians, and you know, and also for example that the William case where he refuses to acknowledge, um, you know, how, did you, what did you do further research into sort of the the descendants of these people? Yeah, so I mean, I guess with William's case, there was a really unhappy family story. And that's, you know, the separation of his parents. And that's why he grew up not knowing, well, he knew his identity, but he didn't identify with that. Um, but if we take another William, William Liu. So William Liu was the son of a, Cantonese, a Titanese father and a, and a, and a white mother. And he was born in Sydney. Um, his mother became unwell when he was a small boy. And so he was sent back to his father's village in Taishan, where he lived for most of his childhood. And when he came back to Australia, he was 
fluent, well, not very fluent in English, but he was educate, then educated in English, but fluent in Chinese. And so he embraced those two sides of his, um, his upbringing um, and went on to be a great activist for the Chinese-Australian community because he had those, those sort of two, two sides to his, his life. Um, I guess it's, it, it sort of depends on where those two, like, how do I explain this? Um, you know, a lot of these mixed families lived in little country towns in the bush. Um, they may have well been the only Chinese family in their town. So for them to have a sense of sort of Chineseness, I mean, they were Chinese because they were different, but they didn't have language and culture and those sorts of things. So they just grew up as Australians, you know. Um, I can see Dawn, who is descended from one of these families, nodding in the front here. You know, that they, they just became Australian. Um, whereas families like these, where, where families can, kept going backwards and forwards, there was a greater sense of, of kind of a, a maintenance of Chinese identity and culture. Yeah. Um. My name's Grace. My question is about Agnes's story. So what was Agnes's family, family's reaction to her relationship with William? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, so there's not a lot of evidence for how her family viewed the relationship. Um, but before she married him, her father took her to the customs office in Townsville so that they could talk to the customs officer about what her marriage would mean for her in terms of her nationality and in terms of her ability to come and go from Australia. Um, and the customs officer wrote in a memo that he felt that Agnes's father did not approve of the marriage. Um, but I think looking at the dates, it may well have been that Agnes was pregnant when they were married. So it may have been, that may have prompted the actual marriage and, and meant that her family kind of had to accept, accept it. But certainly when she came back with the baby, um, they, she lived with them and he actually was raised by his grandparents for a lot of his early life. So they accepted him, um, yeah. Thank you very much, Kate, for Thank a you. very rich and thought-provoking lecture. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.